Good morning again. Uh, Shona said you'll be hearing more from me uh, later, and that's now. I hope you don't hear much from me now. I hope we can hear God's Word together. So it'd be great if you can have that part of God's Word open, Genesis chapters 8 and 9. Uh, earlier on this year, we worked through these chapters uh, at our church in City on Hill in Wellington, um, and it's a great privilege to open it uh, for you now. Uh, so why don't you pray with me as we uh, dig into God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, as well as creating the heavens and the earth, uh, you have spoken to us, your people. Uh, You have spoken to us through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and you uh, continue to speak to us by your word. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit might work in our hearts and our minds to convict us of the truth of your word, to be changed and shaped by it, so we might be people who know you, who love you, who serve you, who give our whole lives for you and for your kingdom, for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Now, I was uh, over here in Australia a couple of months back at a conference, uh, and something quite embarrassing happened at the conference. Uh, Some poor bloke was up presenting something about church planting or something like that, and this screen appeared on his PowerPoint presentation. We've got an update for you, it says. Restart now. Uh, The guy apologised, his face went a little bit red, but it really wasn't the end of the world. Uh, A few years back, when Bill Gates was still operating Microsoft, he was the founder, he was launching a product before the whole world in front of a worldwide audience when the notorious blue screen of death appeared for him and his co-presenter. Now, you might not have suffered that level of embarrassment, but we all know that, that sinking feeling, don't we? That sinking feeling of when the, the spinning wheel of death or the, everything on your computer freezes. See, if you use a phone or a tablet or a computer, at some point you'll have had to work out how to reboot the system. You'll have to, how to work out how to reboot the system and then you've sat there as the screen goes blank and then there's a little timer or a little wheel or a progress bar and it does its thing and one by one the programs reload. And then eventually you get the familiar sight of your desktop or your home screen and now hopefully... It is free of whatever it was that made it crash in the first place. Now, I'm sure you've been through that process, and that process, it helps us put in a good, puts us in a good position to appreciate what's going on at the beginning of Genesis chapter 8. Last week in Genesis chapter 6 and 7, you would have seen that God acted in watery judgment on Noah, and there was the ark filled with animals. Oh, sorry, God acted in watery judgment on the world, and so there was Noah and the ark filled with animals and the flood. But now God has rebooted the creation. It's almost like restoring the factory settings. And the sole survivor is this man called Noah and his family. And it's as though God is restarting the human race through him. He's like humanity 2.0. And so we've got Genesis chapter 8. And as the reboot has happened, as the home screen has reappeared, we've got a whole bunch of questions that we want to ask. How will things go in this brave new, if not slightly muddy world? What will have changed? What's the same? Will God's drastic step have fixed the problem? And so in Genesis chapter 8, God has turned off the chaps, he's pulled the plug, and the floodwaters slowly recede, with the emphasis there being on slowly. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1 says this. Have a look. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Verse 3. The waters receded steadily from the earth, And at the end of the 150th day, the water had gone down. On the 70th day, 
of the seventh, of the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Kind of gradually the waters are receding. And as they do, if you're reading through, you can feel the tension building. Uh, and it's building and building and building because it seems to be taking some time. Kind of, kind of Noah sends out a series of birds, kind of a raven and some doves, and then there's a bit more faffing around. And eventually, Noah gets out of the ark. It takes 17 verses before things get moving. According to the text, Noah waited 200 days after the rain stopped falling before he re-emerges. It's taken some time. But the reboot has finished. This brave new world is ready and humanity 2.0 gets out of the boat and what do they find? Well, they find that some things are very different. But some things are exactly the same. So let's start with what they find that is the same. The first thing they see is that the job that they have to do as hasn't changed. The task that God has given humanity is still the same. As the system reboots, it's, it's like Genesis chapter 1 again. Uh, three times in uh, chapter 8, verse 17, chapter 9, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 7, three times God repeats the command that he gave to the first humans in Genesis chapter 1. The command, be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful and multiply. The job of humanity 2.0 is to still fill the earth with people who know God and live for God and people who delight in God. Their task is still the same. And it's a chance for them to succeed where the previous generations have failed. The next thing that is the same is what they're like as the human race. We're still made in God's image, it says. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 6 says this, Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God... God has made mankind. You see, even after the flood, humanity 2.0 is still made in the image of God. No amount of sin or evil or rebellion or destruction has wiped that out. No, no flood can wash that away. We still walk around with the dignity and value and worth that comes with bearing the image of our Creator. And because of that, verse 6 says that killing other image bearers is not okay. Now, this isn't a point that I often feel like I need to labour at church, but... Uh, my assumption is, and I could be wrong, my assumption here is that no one in this room has intentionally killed anyone and I assume that um, none of us are planning on doing it later on this afternoon but if you are thinking of killing someone today then Genesis says don't do it and so now that we've sorted that out um, but if you bear with me for a moment I think we actually do need to take a minute to think about what God is saying here. You see, in in our society in New Zealand, and I know it's the same here in New South Wales, there are two controversial issues at the moment where it's being argued quite emotionally and quite vocally that taking the life of another human being is okay. Uh, They've been debated here in our our governments. Uh, The issues are abortion and euthanasia, the bookends of life, and it's argued in those situations it's okay to intentionally end the life of another human being. And it's argued sometimes that it's the just thing to do. It's the humane thing to do. It's the compassionate and loving thing to do. Now, I know these issues are complex. And they're much more complex than to be dealt with in a single Sunday morning sermon with a visiting preacher. And I know these issues carry truckloads of emotion. And I know that for a lot of people who want these services to be more available, they're motivated by compassion. They're motivated by a desire to reduce suffering. They're motivated by... Uh, a hope to give dignity and maintain people's choice and independence. And I think we can say that all of those are good things. So these complex, these issues are complex, and I get that. But because the other person, whether they be terminally ill, 
or an unborn baby because the other person bears the image of God. Genesis chapter 9, I think it tells us that our default position on this issue has to be no. Our default position has to be no. It has to be against killing, against the taking of life of someone who bears God's image. No matter how small they might be, no matter how old they might be, no matter how costly it might be for us to care for them, our default position ought to be against the taking of the life of another. Because as Genesis chapter 9 verse 5 says, God will demand an accounting for those who take the life of another image bearer. Now it's complex, it's not black and white. Even here there is a nod that there may be times where God sanctions the taking of life of another human being. But because we as people bear God's image, the starting point has to be known. It's not okay to take the life of another image bearer and those who do will be held to account. Now it also needs to be said here that if if that is part of your story, um, then it says here that forgiveness is possible and we'll see a little bit more of that later. So back to the flood and the ark and Noah. Yes, God has intervened in this cataclysmic way through sending a flood. Yes, God has acted in judgment to restart the human project. But in this post-flood world, God's basic plans haven't changed. We still carry the image of God and we still bear the responsibilities that go with that, to be fruitful and multiply, to be filling and not killing. And that is what is the same. But after the flood, some things have changed. So what's different this side of the flood? Well, first, there is a a new guarantee, a new covenant. Uh, Have a look there in chapter 8, verse 21. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 21, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of their human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. You see, this new guarantee, it begins with this promise, a promise that that God won't make things on earth any worse. Uh, Now, what God said back in uh, Genesis chapter 3 still stands. Life on this earth is still hard as a result of our rejection of God. But God says, even though you're still rebellious and selfish and self-obsessed, even if nothing changes, I'm not going to keep rebooting the system. The human race won't be wiped out like that again. That was a one-off, God says. And and God goes further. He not only does guarantee that he won't kind of end the earth in a consuming catastrophe, but God promises a new type of relationship with his people. A new type of relationship called a covenant. And now a covenant is just a, a relationship defined by a set of promises. A marriage is a covenant, a relationship between a husband and a wife who have made promises to one another. And what God is doing after the flood is he's going to establish a covenant, a serious, committed relationship with Noah and his descendants. Uh, we see this from uh, chapter 9, verse 8 following. Uh, and, and if just kind of quickly scanning through that, you begin to see how important the idea of the covenant is. Uh, chapter 9, verse 9, I now establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making, a covenant for all generations to come. Verse 13, it'll be a sign of the covenant. Verse 15, I will remember my covenant. Verse 16, and guess what? I'll see it and remember the everlasting covenant. Verse 17, and just in case we're as thick as a brick, this is the sign of the covenant. You don't need to be brilliant at reading the Bible to understand that that God's talking about a covenant here, right? 
a committed relationship based on promises. God, up until this point, it's been clear that God is passionately committed to have a relationship with his people, to have a relationship with the people who bear his image. And even though the human race has done a spectacular job of pushing God off, uh, and that kind of throws that relationship into doubt, uh, and we might be thinking this on a personal level as, level as well. We might be thinking, if you knew what I'd done, if you knew the mistakes that I'd made, if you knew the people I'd hurt and how I'd hurt them, if you knew the things that I'd thought, we might be thinking on a personal level, after all we've done, does God still want to know me? Does God still love us? Here in Genesis chapter 9, we're thinking, after all that humanity has done, does God still want to know these people? Does he still want a relationship with these people? Is a relationship with these people even possible? Well, here in Genesis chapter 9, the answer is really, really clear. God says to Noah again and again and again, I am making a covenant, a committed relationship, a covenant relationship that is based on my promise, not on your performance. And there's something that's a little bit different about this covenant compared to the others that will come later in the Bible. See, later in the Bible, um, the covenants are almost always made to people, uh, just, just to people. But interestingly here, the covenant here is made to all flesh. Did you notice that? I think it's to tell us that we're not to forget that God's plans include the whole cosmos. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, everything was affected. The whole earth was kind of cracked with the impact of sin. But God's rescue plan is to fix and restore all of creation. In the New Testament, Paul the Apostle will speak of God's plan to reconcile all things to himself in Christ. In the same way, John, another apostle, an eyewitness of Jesus, he speaks of being shown a whole new heavens and earth, a whole new creation is on its way. And so here in Genesis, God is making promises to all of creation that one day everything will be put right, that one day it won't all be destroyed by flood, but it will be made new. And so how is that going to happen? How is God going to do that? Well, surprisingly, even here in the earliest chapters of the Bible, the answer is, is, is quietly clear. The restoration is possible because there is now this focus on forgiveness. After the flood, we see how humanity's rebellion is going to be dealt with. Uh, take a look at what Noah does the moment he gets out of the ark. Chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 8, verse 20 uh, Noah gets out of the ark and then, then it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and the clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Uh, now, don't think too hard about where those animals came from or whether they're the last of those kinds, now that he's just kind of got out of the ark and uh, put them on the altar. But what does Noah do? He makes a sacrifice. He makes a sacrifice. Now, sacrifices can do all sorts of things. Sacrifices can be used to say sorry, like a, a bunch of flowers brought home by a guilty husband. Uh, raise your hands if you know, that, maybe don't. Um, sacrifices can express devotion, uh, a statement of intent. I'll worship God with all that I am and all that I have. Uh, but if we look here closely at uh, chapter 8, verse 21, this sacrifice has a very definite purpose. It has a very specific result. Uh, chapter 8, verse 21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. 
Now, there are two things to notice here. Every time in the Bible we're told that there is a pleasing aroma when God takes pleasure in a sacrifice, it's a, it's a sign that everything between us and God is now restored. Things are well between us and God. And it's possible because of this sacrifice. The second thing to see here is, did you notice the contradiction in verse 21? How can God, who has just judged the world, say, I am pleased with you, I want to be with you, I'm still in relationship with you, but you're still utterly evil? How do those sit side by side? Well, it's got something to do with the sacrifice. God is saying that forgiveness, that restoration to right relationship is possible for rebellious people like you and me through a sacrifice. And if you're wondering how the mechanics of the sacrifice and forgiveness works, in chapter 9, verses 4 to 5, we get a, a hint on how, he, how God will do it, and it's got to do with blood. Uh, chapter 9, verse 4. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it, still in it. For your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. So what's the deal with blood? I don't think it, it's not super clear, but I think it's saying that the blood of animals is supposed to act like a, like a dripping signpost, a sign to show us two things. Firstly, to remind us that we all deserve to die, as this animal has just died before us. The animal's death is a wake-up call that we, we will die too. The second thing the blood shows us is that forgiveness can only come when someone has paid the price, when they have made a sacrifice. And we read that in the Hebrews reading, didn't we? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Forgiveness is possible, but it can only come through blood, only through the paying of debt, only through a death. Now, the details here aren't all completely spelled out for us, but I think that's where it's going. And it's pointing us to see that God has done what it takes. God has done what it's going to take so forgiveness can happen, so that we can have a relationship with him. And for it to happen, it's going to have something to do with blood, And something to do with uh, death, someone dying in our place. Now just hold that thought because as you read the Bible, that's going to be a significant idea. But there's one more thing here. There is a new sign. Chapter 9, verse 16. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 16 says this. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and I'll remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind. Now rainbows, they're impressive double rainbows and the kind of internet loses its mind. They're so beautiful. What do they mean? Well, the Bible tells us what rainbows mean. Uh, In chapter 9, God doesn't say, look at the rainbow and remember that you're not going to get washed away. That's not actually what it says. He says, look at the rainbow and remember the covenant. Remember the relationship based on a promise that I've established with all the earth is a reminder of God's commitment to fulfill his plans and his promises. It's actually a reminder that God will one day remake the heavens and the earth. So next time you see a rainbow, don't just think, I'm glad that we're not all going under. Uh, See the rainbow and remind yourself that despite our failure, we can still be part of a new creation with a glorious and powerful and covenant-keeping God. Remind yourself that despite your failure to live God's way, he has made a way for you to be in right relationship with him through sacrifice. As Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you through Christ's physical body, through death, 
through sacrifice to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. God has opened up the way for a relationship for broken people like you and me through sacrifice, through Christ's physical body, which is broken for us. And with a God like this, with a God like this, how could Noah go wrong? How could Noah go wrong? Well, this brings us to chapter 9, verse 18 and following. A few years back, there was the European Cross-Country Championships and it was all going uh, so well for uh, Jimmy Gressier from France. Uh, He had a comfortable lead. He was going to win. He grabbed two French flags, which he was waving as he was about to cross the line in kind of championship glory. And it was going to be a beautiful moment until he decided to showboat. Uh, And so he decided he was going to slide on his knees across the line. Uh, But it wasn't such a beautiful moment once his knees kind of lodged in the mud and over he goes, face first, through the ribbon, in an embarrassing anticlimax. I kind of feel like this is what's going on here at the end of Genesis chapter 9. Noah steps out into this world that's kind of reset to be all that God's intended to be. Noah, he was the one whom God has chosen. Uh, God has made a covenant with him, a committed relationship with him. Everything seems to be back on track. Everything's going to be wonderful. And then chapter 9, verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. You see, Noah gets drunk, he gets embarrassingly drunk, he gets disgracefully drunk. Now, we don't really know what happens other than the fact that kind of one of his sons, Ham, kind of mocks him and the other, they have a bit more modesty and they try to spare his embarrassment in the morning by, by covering him up. But why is this sorry story in the Bible? Why is it there? And so that we realise that even a man like Noah, even a good man like Noah can't change the world. You see, Noah was the most righteous man on earth at the time. In a world where all the ungodly have been wiped out, uh, even he doesn't have it in him to live properly all of the time. None of us do. And we see this pattern repeat over and over again in the Old Testament. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Solomon, Nehemiah, Great moments in the history of God's people and they're all quickly followed by great disappointments, great mistakes. I mean, we need to be clear here. Noah was about as good as it got. He was as godly as they came. And God gives him this awesome opportunity to restart the Eden Project all over again and he blows it. And sadly, it points to the fact that we need someone better than Noah. We need someone better than Noah if humanity is going to get things right with God. And so it means that on one level, these, these chapters at the end, are, well, these verses at the end are a massive anticlimax. The whole universe is rebooted and what happens? It crashes again straight away. Which means these chapters tell us we need someone better than Noah. Our hope needs to be in someone other than Noah. These chapters show us what an incredible commitment that God has made to people like us. That our hope needs to be in him because he is the one who will do what it takes for people like you and me to enjoy life with him forever in a remade cosmos. And these chapters start to explain how God is going to do it. It's not going to be based on human performance. It's going to require a sacrifice so that there can be forgiveness. 
And we're privileged because we can see where all of this is heading. As we keep reading the Bible, we meet one of Noah's descendants, the one who really does provide a permanent solution, the one through whom God sets up an everlasting covenant. Uh, We'll see in the New Testament the one who, while we were still powerless, he died for us, the ungodly. That is where the rainbow is pointing. That is why the flood is there. That is why Noah is given so much airplay to remind us of this very simple fact. Our hope is found in Christ alone. Our hope is found in Christ alone. He was the one who sacrificed himself for us so that forgiveness might be possible for you and me. I'll finish with these words from Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we know that we are flawed people. We muck up all the time, we rebel against you, we break your good word, we do damage to the people that you have made. For this we are sorry. Father, thank you that forgiveness is possible through sacrifice. Thank you for sending someone better than Noah. Thank you that you have shown us your love in Jesus' sacrifice for us. Lord, help us to remember your covenant, that you will not destroy the world in the same way, but you will make everything new. Lord, we look forward to that day and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.